Hi everybody, welcome to the Stratosphere Lounge. Uh, I'm your host, Bill Little, but you probably know that by now. Um, it is the 24th of August, 2023. I uh, hope everybody is doing well. I'm just uh, checking my mail here real quick to see if there's any last minute updates. I don't think there are. So far looking pretty good. All right, so um, as I said, we hope we're having a nominal time here at uh, at BillWhittle.com as we continue with this um, interview show, which is coming together very, very quickly. So I can uh, let you know all about that. Let me just get my little screens here all kind of whizzed and banged up here. There we go. Hang on. Okay, now to move this over, and then we're going to do this, and then we're then we're good to go. So. Um, Yes, I don't know exactly where I left off uh, last time, but uh, I can tell you a couple, uh, several pieces of good news. Um, we uh, have I've sent out a number of letters now, so let me tell you who is a confirmed yes. Uh, both Bert Rutan and Dick Rutan are yes for separate shows. Um, let me back up a little bit. Uh, I continue to um, refine this idea, and I don't know whether I mentioned this on the lounge or last studio or whatever, but um, uh, right now, and I think probably permanently, I've decided the thing to do is to call the show Archetypes, and the reason I want to do that is because I think it'll uh, help me focus and not just be all over the board, and also I think it will help explain the idea of the show, which, as I say, we continue to be... um, uh, refining. So the idea behind this, again, which I'm sure I've mentioned a little bit before, but I'm going to just kind of go into more detail as um, as it develops for me here. The reason I'm going to call it Archetypes is that I'm going to be doing um, interviews with specific people about specific characters or characteristics. Now, i got to be careful about not painting myself into a corner here but I think I can probably pull it off. What that means is when I, whenever I do an interview, the interview is going to be essentially done for the purpose of that archetype. So if we do a show on, when we do the show on Bert Rutan, that'll be called the innovator. And then when we do one with Dick, it'll be called the steely eyed missile man or the warrior or probably steely eyed missile man. Um, and so I'm going to have to think of a name for vir- virtually all of these people, but I don't think that's going to be too terribly hard. So um, I have a uh, an email out to James Woods. I have not heard back from him yet, but here's what I have heard. Uh, Bert Rutan is, is in, is go. Dick Rutan is go. Um, Adam Baldwin is go. Uh, Tom Dreesen is go. Gary Sinise is go. John Voigt is go, and Mike Rowe is go. I sent Mike a three-paragraph description of um, – well, I, spent, I sent all of them a three-paragraph description of what it was I wanted to do. And a few moments later, Mike uh, got back to me. Uh, it just said, yes, and that's it. So um, so we've got a, a, a real strong lineup. I think the cha- – I don't I – don't, I have an email address for James Wood. I haven't heard back from him, but I – took me five, six days to hear back from John, uh, who was the only uh, semi-reluctant 
uh, person only because he said he didn't know if he had anything really of value to talk about. And I said, John, you're one of the greatest actors of of, of the movie era, and um, and I, I think people would be real interested. Oh well, I've never talked about you know how I go through the process before. I said, well, that, why not? He says nobody's ever asked me, uh, and so um, that's that. So Uptick uh, says, uh, can't wait to get the name. How, would, how are the Rutans on the same stage as an actor? Well, it's because they're both archetypes. And if this was nothing but celebrities, we could certainly do it that way. Um, but it would be kind of missing the point. Um, for example, uh, I'd be very interested, just as one small section of this, um, I'd be very interested in uh, in Bert Rutan's um, thoughts on the uh, on the Ocean Gate uh, disaster, because Bert has had to do a number of things um, that involved out of the box thinking and new technologies, and his safety record is just absolutely excellent. And uh, and he is the most innovative and, and and brilliant engineer I've ever met or or am likely to meet. And I think he'd have some very interesting takes on a lot of things like that, mostly about thinking out of the box. Um, Dick Rutan was one of the guys we featured on um, America's Forgotten Heroes. He not only uh, flew the Voyager aircraft around the world, pretty much single-handedly without sleeping, um, he has... Uh, he served in Vietnam doing uh, the fast fact, uh, fast fact missions forward air controllers. A team of two guys in two-seat F-100s flying in low and fast over uh, targets in Vietnam to mark them. And um, these were called uh, MISTI pilots, MISTI missions. And each MISTI pilot had his own number. And I think there's something in the neighborhood of 143 of them or something. Uh, Dick's experience in Vietnam and, and his and his understanding of the, the compact between um, between a, a warrior and his government is is fascinating, and so all of it is is there. So, what I'm really looking for is is variety. Um, the SOs are the other ones are, are are probably better known names, but there are. I, I don't want to just limit it to that. I don't want it to be Jiminy Glick, you know. So um, so that's uh, that. Let me understand this. It is how Bert and Dick come up with their ideas and work and workarounds. No, um, they're both. I, I consider both of them to be archetypes. I consider Bert to be a, the the living definitive archetype of the the engineer or the, or the um, innovator. I haven't decided yet. Probably the innovator. Um, and I think uh, Dick is the is the archetype of you know the pilot or whatever we want to call this steely-eyed missile man, uh, his stories about, his stories are essentially about courage. And the number of incidents that he's told me about just, you know, blew my mind um, in terms of, of how, not only how close he's come to getting killed, but how many times he put himself into that situation uh, getting killed. Um, and when, and when, See what here. What I find interesting about this is, I, certainly the Bert thing is not going to be just about Stockton Rush by any means. However, I know the level of commitment that Bert has to safety, 
And even though his airplanes are so innovative, you can spot them from a quarter mile away on the ramp. You, you can tell that that's a, a Rutan design. They are completely original. And he also basically invented an entire new way to build airplanes, which was uh, foam foam core wings with uh, fiberglass on the outside. So how is it? What's the difference? This is the question, really. What's the difference between Burt Rutan and Stockton Rush? That's what I'm interested in. What's the difference? Uh, well, aside from the fact that one of them is, is alive and the other one isn't, um, how do you innovate and and take chances without doing what he did, what Rush did? Who every single day, my you know interest in it is fading as the story fades, only because I've read and heard everything I could possibly find on it. Uh, but clearly, Stockton Rush had a a, a a really profoundly messed up. Uh, moral matrix and and a great deal of ego uh, and um, Bert has none of those things and he's also just you know he's been he's won the Collier Trust tr you know, he's just he's just the guy um, I have gotten uh, from Bert uh, a couple of email addresses I asked him if he knew there are, as as we record this, there are four men living still who have walked on the moon. Uh, that it be strangely enough and remarkably enough, one of them is the the, the first guy to land on the moon because he and Armstrong touched down at the exact same time. And second man to walk on the moon, Buzz Aldrin, is still with us. Um, uh, Dave Scott, commander of Apollo 15, is still with us. Charlie Duke, lunar module pilot for Apollo 16, is still with us. And Jack Schmidt, who is the scientist. Uh, on Apollo 17 is still with us. Um, I'm trying to find out uh, if I can get some of the other names, but I, I, apparently uh, Bert sent me the, um, the email address for uh, Jack Harrison, Jack Schmidt, and that is somebody I would like to talk to very, very, very much. And I think... I think what I'd really most like to talk to him about, and I do have a, a, a private copy. I, I just I finally got it after only four years because I finally asked for it. Um, Eric Blake says Glenn Beck had Duke on recently. Uh, I'd actually really like to get Charlie. I, I think I'd prefer to get Charlie Duke, and I'll tell you why in just a second. But well, I'll tell you why first. Um, any of them will be a, a great honor, and and. So, so there's that. Um, and the reason I think Charlie Duke is interesting is because if you listen to the, um, not just to the, the actual landings, but the, the, the radio communications out on the lunar surface, Charlie Duke is by far having more fun than anybody else I've ever heard uh, in, in the astronaut program. Charlie Duke is just having a screaming blast all the way down. He's having a screaming blast out on the moon. He's 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 out there during the um, what did they call it? The um, they were basically testing out the rover. They used the rover on Apollo 15, but they they had a kind of a bumpy bit of ground there. And uh, was it called? They call it the regatta or something. Anyway, John Young is in the is driving the limb uh, the rover, 
Duke is standing there photo uh, photograph uh, videotaping him and uh, Duke is just constantly saying come on come on John just put you know, just put your foot down just really show us just do some real rooster tails and John Young who's a, as steely-eyed a missile man as ever lived said no, I don't really feel like doing that this goes on for two minutes. It's 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 like a comedy show, and Charlie Duke is just having so much fun. Oh man, this thing really kicked up a twenty foot rooster tail. You should see it, John. It's amazing, John, John, John. When you come come right by the camera and then do like a real quick stop, like a real abrupt stop, and John Sung, John Young says, "I don't I don't want to do that." So, it's awfully fun. Um, and then Marisha says, "What happens if you run? What happens when you run out of archetypes?" I'm I'm thinking I will run out of um, adjectives before I'm thinking I run out of interviews before I run out of adjectives uh, after a great deal of thought I think that um, that I will find enough new combinations I mean, just as one example Dick could either be the warrior he could be the uh, the um, the steely-eyed missile man the pilot so I guess I'll worry about that later but right now I'm feeling pretty good. When I was thinking about comedians, because this is a problem, is like you've got to. If I go with this naming convention, I'm not completely sold on the idea of doing the naming convention precisely for this reason, but um, I am very much liking this idea of archetypes. Uh, and so I was thinking, all right, well, um, what about comedians you know you have a bunch of comedians I, I i could say the comedian and then i've had one comedian what happens if i when i have three comedians and i gave that a little thought and i thought well i could i could call tom Dreesen either the humorist or the storyteller because that's basically what he does um and i could call dave zucker the class clown because that's kind of his level that that's the the kind of comedy he does so i think i'll be okay and if I have to repeat it, I'll repeat it, or I don't know, I'll throw an asterisk on it. I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, but in any event, um, I'll see. Like, there you go. Eric Blake says, when you get Tom Cruise on uh, the stuntman, to be perfectly honest with you, if I got Tom Cruise, I, I would I would say the movie star. Because um, John Voight and and, uh, and Gary Sinise are both superb, acts, superb actors and, and with long careers. But Tom Cruise is a movie star, and that's that. So Andrew DeLay says, hi, Bill Whittle. Today is my birthday, 29 again. I may have celebrated more than one 29th birthday. Happy birthday to you, Andrew, from, uh, from me and from everybody else here who's watching live and from everybody else out there in uh, television land. So uh, there you go. Uh, Nick Searcy's uh, name came up. Um, you know, there's a hundred different ways you could, you could, you could do that. Um, so I, I think we'll be fine. Um, one, uh, I don't want to mention it. I mentioned it on the stretch for studio on Monday and I, and I have not put up the recorded version of that show yet. As a matter of fact, I, I'm this, I owe two stratosphere lounges to YouTube and I've just, this is because I've decided to go to the trouble of doing the audio processing on them and stuff. But in any event, um, the uh, in the last um, in the last uh, Stratosphere Studio show on Monday, I mentioned very specific and special um, gifts of appreciation, uh, which 
I would like to present to them on camera on behalf of the members of BillWaldo.com who are paying for them. And I'm not going to repeat them here because once I said it, I got, my God, I don't want that to get out. I just don't want, I don't want that to leak out. Um, but I started thinking about some of the people who are coming and some of the other potential people that were coming. And, and I, and I thought, my God, I know what, because it's got to be, you know, it's got, it can't be just like, hey, here, here's your toaster. Um, it has to be something really specific and specific to the movie business or, or, or in Bert Dick's case, something mean, meaningful. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, and I thought that's what's going to give me a problem is, um, is thinking about the gifts. And Natasha said, um, well, uh, why don't you just have the members make suggestions on the gifts? And I thought, perfect, perfect because all of us are smarter than any one of us. And, um, and uh, you know, that's, uh, that's how that works. So um, I've been uh, catching up on, on some of these guys' movies, and I've had uh, what I thought were some really interesting, really, really interesting questions. Um, I don't know if I used this analogy when I talked about this last Monday, just a couple days ago, but I was listening to um, Jordan Peterson interviewing uh, Jim Caviezel and talking about uh, Heath Ledger's role in in um, the second Batman movie and how getting that deep into the mind of a psychopath uh, would that have been dangerous to him? And you know, and, and, and does that harm actors? And Jim just jumped in there and gave an answer that really didn't have anything to do with that. Jim said it was the best question he's ever heard. So let's use Heath Ledger as an example, just for the clarity of it. Um, this is my operational theory on this. So there, what I'm trying to do with this show is I want to I want to isolate a specific frequency of human behavior, a specific and precise archetype, let me rephrase that, a, a specific and precise topic of whom the person in question could be considered archetypical, archetypical of them. So, um, so using Heath Ledger as an example, here's, here's my, my chain of thought on this whole thing. The Joker's a psychopath, and Heath Ledger isn't. If you ask a psychopath what's going on in his mind and his motivations, you will get an answer. You will get an answer from a psychopath. You won't get an answer that makes sense to you and me. It's not like you and I could just switch on being a psychopath for a few days and then write our notes down and then, and, and tell us about it. You'd get an answer from a psychopath and. Speaking of psychopaths, the same thing essentially is true for, you know, engineers or soldiers or whatever. A lot of these people are not talkative types. Uh, the strong, silent type, you know, the tough guy type that, that um, Adam Baldwin plays, for example. These people don't talk a lot. And, and so my feeling is, is that if you can make the kind of standout performance like Heath Ledger did with the Joker or Gary did with um, Lieutenant Dan or John did with um, Joe Buck, then that actor has access to 
something either very good or very bad or very interesting about human behavior, but they have access to that. And when I was talking to John about it, uh, trying to convince him to do it, I said, John, you know, you've got these characters like the character he played in The Champ, or, you know, and um, he's not on paper, he's not a very likable guy. He's not supposed to be a likable guy. But you've got a certain alchemy. There's some something that you put in the cauldron for him that made everybody in the theater, I watched it in the theater, crying their eyes out when he dies at the end. And I want to know what that is. I want to know what that redeeming quality is. Uh, with with Gary, I plan to I plan to break down Lieutenant Dan in a lot of detail because I think Gary has ins. This is where this is the again the the point. I think Gary Sinise has insight into what it is to be a wounded veteran, but can explain it in a way that a wounded veteran wouldn't or couldn't. And this is a two-way street too, so that's what makes an interesting conversation. It's not. It's going to be a discussion, not so much a, you know, me with a bunch of index cards, because I really want to go through the whole Lieutenant Dan arc, and I want to ask him some questions. Uh, this I'm not so much worried about getting out, but just to give you one example of the kind of thing I'm interested in. If you, if you, if you think about uh, Lieutenant Dan's arc, I did hear Gary say this in an interview, a very, very recent interview. He said, you know. And we talked about this on the show too, I think on Monday. So if you look at the, if you look at this, Forrest Gump, and just lift the sections of Forrest and Lieutenant Dan, you end up with a pretty interesting 16-minute movie. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly right. It's a self-contained story within the story. It's got its own arcs, got its own up and downs, and so on. So I was thinking about that movie within a movie, the the relationship between Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump. And my uh, theater background, which is, as I mentioned before, responsible for the uh, untold riches that follow you around your entire life once you've had a theater degree. Um, what, what I want to talk to Gary about is, so there's two transformative moments that I could see in the life of Lieutenant Dan, uh, Gary. One of them is... Obviously, when he's on top of the um, the rigging of the shrimp boat, the storm is raging. He's shaking his fist at God. He's challenging God, and 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 basically says for God to come and kill him. And and when God doesn't, that's when that's when Lieutenant Dan decides he wants to live after all. And when he finally thanks Forrest and goes for the swim, that's awesome. It's a extremely powerful moment. But it occurs after Dan made the decision to live. And I want to ask him about something like this so before lieutenant dan shows up on the dock with forrest coming by in the shrimp boat he's still in a wheelchair he's still got long hair he's still edgy but he's not feral like he was in new york when you see him in new york which is where you see him on the on the um the, the last time prior lieutenant dan is is just a he's an alcoholic basket case and and he's just so toxic and when we leave him there on new year's eve he's toxic and i want to know what happened to lieutenant dan in new york 
that got him to go down to Louisiana and, and meet him on the dock? That's a question that I'm fairly sure he's never gotten before. And I don't want him to answer as Lieutenant Dan in terms of like do it in character, be embarrassing, but what's the motivation for this? And, and where did, I think the reason that he is such a power, that his effect on, on, on real veterans is so powerful is not because he showed a happy ending. I think it's because Lieutenant Dan showed, Gary Sinise showed how god-awful living hell monstrously rotten it was to be a wounded vet coming back from Vietnam. It was, it was the low point that people connected to, not the high point. And I think it gave, for the first time ever, it gave vets from Vietnam and, 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 and other wars as well since then. It gave them uh, a pathway, a pathway um, for them to return to the world and, and, and be healthy and sane. And, and when Lieutenant Dan shows up at the wedding at the end of that movie, it looks like he was made by God that morning. You know, he's just, just, just so clean and so new, just new. And, um, and I really, really, you know, want to talk about that. He's talked an awful lot about what, what the reaction he's gotten from the vets and, and the, the, you know, the, um, Gary Sinise Foundation and Lieutenant Dan Band and all that other stuff. So I'm happy to talk about some of that, but I want to, I don't want to talk about it like, hey, Gary, so tell me about that. I want, I want to talk about it with Lieutenant Dan. And I think Lieutenant Dan has got a lot to say about the willpower necessary to save your own life. That's the kind of, that's what I want the show to be about. That kind of thing. Um, where did he get the strength to go to Louisiana? Because clearly, Lieutenant Dan at the end of that movie, uh, Lieutenant Dan at the wedding at the end of the movie, is a much better and happier person than Lieutenant Dan is in Vietnam before he gets his legs blown off. Because prior to getting his legs blown off, this guy's got a death wish, and it's pretty obvious that he's got a death wish. He knows it's, his entire family's been killed. Some member of his family's been killed in every American war, and Lieutenant Dan's there to die in Vietnam. He knows it. He's got a death wish, and Forrest robs him of that and robs him of the Medal of Honor that he thinks should have been his. So now he's completely bitter. So, yes, he takes a certain dip, but the guy who comes out on the other end is better than the man that they met in the camp in the beginning. He's, he's, a, he's a happy man, and he wants to live. He's got something to live for. Um, so Dave Big Booty says, uh, for send him a letter, and, and, and Lieutenant Dan unfolded. He said, uh, I, I thought I would do this, and I'm a man of my word. Okay. But you were, he was a man of his word who, who had to at some point make the decision to clean up enough to get the hell out of that apartment and and to go down there. And by the way, um, talking with the actors on on this from perspectives that maybe they have not seen is interesting to me too because there've been so I've heard Gary say there've been a lot of movies about Vietnam uh, vets, you know, or the Vietnam War. And there's, you know, Platoon and and um, and Apocalypse Now and Full Metal Jacket and 
you know, bunches of others coming home. But this was the only one that the Vietnam vets themselves, the guys who actually went to Vietnam, this is the only one they connected to. And I'm convinced that a significant percentage of that comes from a line in the movie that Lieutenant Dan doesn't say. Uh, it's it's when uh, Forrest first gets to Vietnam. I think it's right when they're going out on their first patrol. And he says something like, I don't, you know, people talk about this, but I think that some of the best people we had in America went and fought in Vietnam. That line right there, right there, is must have made Vietnam vets just, what? What? You know, been called baby killers and, and losers and, and, you know, and drug addicts and psychopaths and everything. And, and, and the first words out of this guy's mouth is some of the best people we ever had in America went and fought in that war. It's, that's, that's transformative. And I, you know, and I want to talk about the the guilty. I, I, it's not even so much in, in in many of these cases. I'm obviously trying to get stuff from from Gary, but I'm also really interested in in looking at how the film does what it needs to do. For example, one of the scenes when you first meet Lieutenant Dan is the second time you see him. He's leading a patrol out there, and all of a sudden he stops and he tells everybody else in his platoon to get down. Everybody gets down and he starts, um, uh, what, what he will say, sorry, Bill, what all those choices were directed and not by the actors. You're wrong about that. Um, the, the, uh, the director is a conductor. He's not a, he's not a musician. And, and he is, he, the, the, the director is not putting the performance into, into the character, and he's also not putting the character into the, into the actor either. So, no, it's just not right. Anyway, Lieutenant Dan goes down, and, and he's looking for this tripwire for a booby trap. And, um, and, you know, and they're crawling around for a while, and everybody's down. And, 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 and Gump says, I'm just really glad we got Lieutenant Dan. And it turns out it's a false alarm, and he gets up, and they walk on. And I'm saying, why is that scene there? Why, why is it there? What, what is that? And the reason that scene is there is because you have to show the audience that Lieutenant Dan is, is careful, that he cares about his men, that he's not just an idiot walking off into the bush. Well, why does that matter? Well, it matters because when his platoon is wiped out, that increases his guilt level. He should have been checking the trail, essentially. He, 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 he made a, a lapse in his judgment, and that's what is eating Lieutenant Dan. It's not the loss of his legs. It's the loss of his men. That's what's killing him. And, and I just find all of this to be tremendously interesting. Somebody mentioned earlier whether or not um, I would do a separate show with Gary about you know Ken Mattingly, and I, I think the answer to that is no. Um, I will talk about Ken Mattingly. Um, I don't know exactly how the – this thing will boil out, but I do know that there will be an edited version that will be available to members at BillWittle.com, and then our $19.95 a month members will be able to see the whole thing uncut, just the raw footage just glued together, basically. And so I plan to, just from experience, I plan to, to spend the first 15 minutes with all of these guys talking about stuff other than the stuff I really want to talk about, because it usually takes about that long to get people kind of lubricated. Um, so, uh, 
that's uh, that's that's that. I don't know what this is related to. Uh, I, I just a, a comment there in um, in the uh, YouTube um, stream. It says, "Bill, our country does not look good at all." This is another thing I'm trying to accomplish. You know, I just think that that is exactly the attitude that that they are trying to foster and um, and fester. And I've been a bigger part of it uh, as uh, anybody else. So uh, I would have agreed with you. And obviously there's a lot out there that is worrisome, but I think the whole point of, of these things and, and the Mace Mattingly thing for that matter is I, I just think it's a, it's a big, not even a mistake. It's a, it's a, it's walking into an ambush to say that the country is, uh, doesn't look good at all. Uh, I think it's really important to start talking about, well, you know, it doesn't look good in San Francisco, but that's not the country. So, um, so there's that. Uh, and this allows me to do other people as well. If we don't just limit it to actors and, uh, I'm fairly well acquainted with a former member of, I think he's a former member of, uh, one of the SEAL teams. And I'd like to talk to him about what that job is like. I'd like to, I am very much like to talk to an Apollo astronaut about what it's like to have walked on the moon. Those guys are not famous either, but they've got a lot of, um, you know, really interesting things to say. And, and whether I get Schmidt or, or Duke or, 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 um, Dave Scott, if I can get any, either one of them, I want, I want to talk, I want to, I want to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I want to draw from them, basically want to force them to tell me things that they've never talked about in interviews. I want to, I want to talk to, to one of those guys about what does it feel like? What does it feel like? What, what was your sensation when you first looked out the window? What does it feel like? I know what it looks like, and I can imagine what it feels like. And I mentioned this in the um, in the Apollo Eleven series, uh, in the final episode of Apollo Eleven. There's a picture of I, I spent a lot of time in a picture of, of uh, Neil Armstrong after he's done the moon, after he's done the landing. I think, or maybe it was after the moonwalk. In any event, Neil's looking happy and relieved. Then there's another picture of um, Gene Cernan in Apollo 17, and he's wearing his. You can just he's got the suit off and he's wearing his his long johns basically, and he's just covered in in gray dirt, and and he needs a shower real bad, and he's going to have to wait another five six days. So I guess one. And so Schmidt was covered in that dirt too, and I'm and I'm curious to know. Did you feel, did you feel like you were covered in dirt, or did you feel like you were covered in moon dust? Because I'm kind of thinking, it would, if it were me, I would feel like I'm dirty. It's not going to dawn on me that that all of human history has been trying to get some of this dust that I'm about to rush down the shower and just get, just get out of my hair is, is, you know, it's incredibly precious. 
But the sensations, you know, the sensations, all of it. I'm really, really interested in it, and, and so I'm, I, have, I have good feelings about it, so we'll see. Um, uh, so there we go. Uh, what's going on here? Let's get a little nasty there. Okay, well, I'll keep an eye on that. So, um, anyway, uh, everyone who's gotten back to me that I asked to do it so far has said yes, and that's very encouraging. So we got a whole bunch of whole bunch of people um, uh, stacked up. I mean, I really think we could get 12 without breathing hard just for the initial set so that's that um i don't really have much uh, to say leading into this thing so why don't we just jump on into the questions here and and uh move the mail but the support has been tremendous in the and and for those of you that made contri contributions from um last week's show uh and since then as well very very grateful and um getting a little better at this so, um, you know, I've known John and Gary since 2007, and I have never, ever asked them to do anything for me like this because just being in their company, I always felt was uh, just an enormous privilege. So when I first sent those first two emails out, that was a kind of a, you know, a watershed for me. So everything is uh, is looking good. We just... We just got to get through the next month, and we'll find a way to do that. So let's see what the members have to say over at BillWhittle.com. And um, I'm looking forward to thinking what the group hive mind can find for um, really, you know, thoughtful questions for, for some of these guys. By the way, I'm inordinately proud of the, the thumbnail I did for my right angle. Uh, let's basically talk about the amount of water that... Uh, just goes fresh water goes flowing past whenever it rains in Los Angeles just billions of gallons of 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 fresh water just being flushed out into the sea and uh, right after the uh, the hurricane Hillary hit uh, Natasha and I went down to the LA River in the valley which is not far from where we are which is normally just a little slime ditch with you know it's just like seeping, like water would seep up, up from underneath the refrigerator. But when it rains here, that, that culvert fills up real fast. And um, so I was talking about that, and then I just was trying to think of a title for the show in the thumbnail, and I was talking about the water that was wasted. So this big headline that says, Hillary got wasted, just it just made me laugh. Uh, it, it just made me laugh. It still does. I thought that was just really fun. All right, here we go. Allow me to log in. My eyes have been hurting lately, too. Some of that is, I don't know, maybe allergy or something. But I think I've been getting a lot of eye strain lately, and I suspect that what's happening is it's just time to get new prescriptions. Uh, and that's like buying bigger clothes, you know? You know, that's just, that's a one-way street. 
it's just it's just a one-way street you, you know you're never going back and you can either accept it or you can go around squinting all day and and I'm having a hard time uh, seeing the screen so we'll see Uh, Ed Smith here, as I'm teeing this up, as it was talking about the country, he said, personally, I think the country can be saved by people who want to take back ownership of their lives and their country. The Tea Party members desire to retain Social Security demonstrated they were not those people. The country that will come out of this will be both the same country and a different country than the one that went into it. Our, our job is to make sure it's a better country. And I have... Uh, every day become more confident that, that is the case and this is one of the reasons why I want to do this show because I think these human qualities and these human archetypes will be very useful when it comes time to uh, spread the news to um, to all of those humans working in the underground sugar caves so here we go I'm not going to play the turtle game anymore, but here's the first question from Eric Blake. So let's see what we got. Here's a new what if this time about Ronald Reagan. As you know, he first ran for president in 1976, trying to, to primary Gerald Ford and, of course, failing. But what if he succeeded? Would he have won against Jimmy Carter four years early? If so, would this early Reagan era have proven better for our nation in the long run? Well, apparently he briefly ran in 68, but whatever, nobody remembers that. So what if Reagan had won in 76? I don't believe, I don't, I don't think, I don't think any Republican was going to win in 76 after Watergate. I just, I just, I just don't think it could have happened. Reagan isn't Reagan without Carter. You know, there's just no contrast there. It's, it's all about the contrast. The reason that Reagan is so um, widely regarded by conservatives and, um, and by many other people is not just because of his excellent qualities, but also because of how rapidly he turned around the national mood that Jimmy Carter had set, which goes to show you that that, that the that while the president doesn't run the economy uh, or any of that stuff, he doesn't make the laws. The character of the president has enormous influence over this country, and the character of the current president is um, having an enormous influence on this country as well. So. Um, That, that optimism would have been welcome anywhere, but it, but it really needed to be coming off of, you know, national malaise and, you know, and all the rest of that stuff. So I, I don't, I don't, I think Reagan came exactly when he needed, was elected exactly when he needed to. Um, I will take that under consideration, Colonel Angus. I, I just need to go see an eye doctor and up. Ophthalmologist, I guess, instead of an optician. So, optician. So we'll see. There's another Eric Blake question, which we'll come back to if we have time. Chris Taylor. Uh, just FYI, typical residential water consumption is 80 gallons a day. To serve 100 gallons a day to 4 million people for 270 days would take water storage of 108 billion gallons. This converts to about 331,000 acre feet of reservoir capacity if L.A. wanted to store all that rainwater. Between the Attics and Barker Reservoirs in the city of Houston, Texas has 410,000 acre-feet storage capacity, which is more than what L.A. would need, if I'm reading these numbers correctly. 
And those are nothing so sophisticated as concrete boxes. They're low-lying, low-value land near Houston with an earthen berm around them. Uh, that's very interesting news, but nothing... Uh, uh, California is very slopey, generally speaking. And where it's not slopey, it's insanely expensive. So I'm thinking it's going to have to be something that can be built underground rather than just, you know letting an area fill up but reservoirs are reservoirs one way or another um, since Houston's problem is not long-term storage but rather temporary storing massive deluges of rain to avoid overloading the runoff system these areas are also used for things like horse trails and hiking RC plane fields sports fields ranges etc when not temporarily underwater interesting problem and not the same one we have here I encourage you to play engineer more often with actual numbers. I think you'd be good at it once you got your confidence up. Uh, Wolf, Wolf from Alpha is a website that takes a lot of the fight out of simple calculations and conversions like the one above. Uh, yes, um, all that is true, uh, Chris. And uh, my flip answer is, uh, why would I have to do that when you're going to do it for me? Uh, my more serious answer is it never occurred to me to do that. And uh, and while I'm sure I could get better at those kind of things, I generally don't um, find that I have the time or the inclination to, to do that kind of math. However, with the exception of when I'm working on one of these daily wire history things and or or a firewall or an afterburner that's when i'm good with data um, uh, i remember very early on in the uh, iraq war um, somebody had said that a million civilians had been killed and i just took the total number of days that we had been there multiplied it by 24 and then took a million divided by that number and i said so you're saying that 390 people per, well, I think it was probably ended up being something like 520 people a day were being murdered by U.S. forces every day for the last three years, you know, that, that kind of thing. Because I can add, and a, a lot of arguments fall apart like this. Uh, the, the one, so to answer your question, Chris, when I feel the need to do it, I, I can do it. I know when preparing for the moon hoax uh, interview I had to be able to defeat the radiation arguments so I had to get into the, into the weeds with that you know what uh, what is a lethal dose of radiation how much did they take um, how much would they have taken how much would they have to take to get a lethal dose of radiation did all the math on that and uh, and it's actually fun when when um, when you get down to it but my point on the Hillary's wasted thing was not so much not even so much the feasibility of it because there are people that can do those calculations it's the simple lack of any effort whatsoever to do anything about the problem zero effort there's no the government is not doing anything that governments should be doing and it's doing a lot of things that governments shouldn't be doing I'm always um, drawn back to my experiences in Salt Lake City with the Mormons on this one because the Mormons run 
their community the way a government should be run. They're, they are not only dealing with the present and, and balancing the budget and all the rest of that stuff and dealing with real needs in a real way. They're also preparing for the future and preparing for rainy days. And and it just requires a little discipline. And, and I just was so impressed by by the level of preparedness that I ran into, not only from the kind of the, the top uh, level um, uh, hosts that were showing me around, but also by just the regular, just regular Mormon people. One of the one of the guys that was driving me around the city was a, he was probably twenty years old. He already had two hundred thousand dollars in savings. He'd spent two years or three years in the Philippines doing missionary work. He was preparing to get married. He had uh, he had six months worth of or, or a year's worth of food in his house, just constantly rotating it out, you know. And and I just thought, my God, I'm I, I just feel like an I feel like an infant compared to these this guy. But that's what responsible management and government does. They 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 prepare. Right now, for example, our electrical grid is incredibly exposed. And not just to major things like EMP pulse or something, but all of our transformer stations have individual transformers that are not interchangeable. Each one is custom made, and and if a government that especially a government that's make that's bringing in the kind of money our government brings in, then governments should be doing things like saying it's time to standardize all of these um, stations, and it's time to. Um, it's time to stockpile a, a significant number of backup generators and disperse them around the country so that when they are needed, we can get it to that location within six hours. That's what a that's what a responsible government would do. It would be looking forward and and trying to fix problems or prepare for problems before they become, you know, catastrophic. But no. The job of government now is to is to simply raid the treasury and line their own pockets, and and of all the things in my life that I that I that I constantly face in amazement, I still cannot. I I used to not believe it. I certainly believe it now. But I still cannot understand how people could sell their country out for money, or or any of these other things that they do for money. I just can't imagine it. Uh, but the evidence is pretty overwhelming, and um, there you go. Uh, all right, here's a new question from Roadrunner. The question, I'm wondering, aside from Natasha, who's going to be your filter on this new show? Well, I guess we probably all will be. We'll react to feedback and and to the um, to the comments on BillWiddle.com and, and on YouTube and all the rest of it. So it'll take us a while to dial it in, I imagine. But in any event, that's that. So here we go. Uh, continue. Yes, yes, yes. You have all the bona fides for on acting and how to ask for and what to ask for questions and skills to edit entertaining links of video. Nice marketing scheme too. Got all of that. But in right angle backstage, you drove your little Camaro right to the sidewalk right after you said Bond girl. And it took Stephen Scott to drag you out of the car and beat you to your senses. You just run and killed your idea of a non-political show when you went right for the blonde hotties of the 1960s. What does she think of femininity in 2023? Steve and Scott both jumped on the political nature of your of your example of a question, and to your credit, you stepped back and said you respected their opinion. Good on you, as you like to say. Hope your reaction was sincere. Well, I can certainly fake sincerity. Um, I'm looking forward to the show for all the reasons you had sold to us last week. I'm all in and will be watching. 
it is going to be virtually impossible for me to make the switch from making political comments on everything to not. But this is where the editing comes in. Um, it's, it, it is it deeply ingrained. And, um, and when you talk to people like Adam Baldwin, for example, he's considerably more militant about this than I am. Um, so I'm going to continue to, um, to stay on guard for that. But if I ask a non-political question and, and, uh, one of our guests starts going off on a political rant. I'm not going to stop them. Um, I may take it out of the out of the base cut, and I I'm virtually certainly would not use it as a promotional thing. But the um, there's going to be two different versions of this, and one of them is here we are sitting down, and here we are getting out of the chairs. So uh, it's it is it is my intention to answer your question there, Roadrunner. It's my intention to steer the show away from politics if, if politics come up, comes up. However, um, as I just mentioned, it's hard to extract lessons for the present day, especially if you posit, as I do, that there are a number of um, extraordinarily important qualities that are rapidly decreasing in our society, the things that we need morality and strength and a lot of this stuff too. So it's hard not to compare the trend lines. And I'm not entirely sure that it can be done without talking about the culture, but I know for a certain fact it can be done without using the word Republican, Democrat, Trump, or Biden. I know that for a fact. So I'm just going to be trying to I said in an email to all of these people, uh, I only have two rules for the show. One of them is uh, that we're not going to talk politics. And the other one is that um, people feel better at the end of the show about themselves and their country than they did when they started. So uh, if I have to, if I have to correct my own errors in the editing room, I will do it then. Um, and I have no doubt it will uh, take a while for me to switch gears on this. So, uh, there's that. Here's one from Steve, Steve Young. Hooray, Steve. When states require climate change lies to be taught as a requirement to graduate, can a student legally be failed in the course for answering no to a question about CO2 forcing global warming, the reason for weather-related disasters? Well, there's a bigger issue here than... Than that, let me just read that again. When states require climate change lies to be taught as a requirement to graduate, can a student legally be failed in the course of for answering no to a question about CO2 and its relationship to, to um, global warming? And this is the bigger issue. Yes, a student can be legally failed because of the the, the subject. It's not the problem with the, the, the problem's not the predicate, the problem's the subject. In other words, 
it, the problem is not that they could fail a student for for providing a wrong answer. The problem is that they're teaching wrong answers as if they're right answers. And if this is if this is taught in such a way as it is a settled piece of accepted wisdom, then you could fail an astronomy student for saying that um, that uh, Venus is the closest planet to the sun, followed by Mercury. You would fail somebody for for uh, being wrong on a question like that, um, and. Uh, Oh, okay, thank you. Um, and so it's the premise that's the problem. I have to tell you, honestly, Steve, every day that passes, I find not only college education as we understood it to be over, but um, yeah, well, maybe that's the, maybe that's the the end of the sentence these systems have become so corrupted now that i that i consider that the result to be useless i consider the output to be so badly tainted and and uh damaged and polluted that i no longer have any confidence in the product you know um you buy enough uh, toasters that explode and pretty soon you stop buying toasters. Uh, and I don't know what's going to take the place of a college education. Uh, I like to think that it will be some form of apprenticeship or something along those lines. Certainly the ability to educate yourself to a very high level uh, using the internet is entirely possible and feasible. But I will... I, I mean, there's there's a lot of this stuff that's just kind of already written, Steve. I was going to say it's a shame that colleges are destroying their own value because going to college is a wonderful experience, and I would hate to see that disappear in the future. But then I realized it's disappeared already. It's long gone. The kind of When you talk about college days, college days today – are not like college days in 1979 or, or even in the 90s or even early 2000s. It's just not the same experience anymore. That that un, that unbelievable freedom and, and that sort of rebellion and the just the sheer fun of it, you know. We're on our own and, um, and you know, it's 4 o'clock in the morning. Anybody want to play some Risk? I'm, I'm in, absolutely. When we have class, 9.30, we get a couple rounds in between now and then. Um, that kind of, that kind of thing is, is that you need people together to have that kind of thing. And, um, and I, and I lament the fact that I don't think that's going to be happening in the not too distant future, that brick and mortar universities are essentially indoctrination factories. I come, I, I think I'm getting to the point where if somebody told me that they graduated from Harvard now, in fact, I'm not, I'm a hundred percent sure that if somebody came to me and said I graduated from Harvard, I would consider that a negative. Uh, I'd consider that a black mark on their record. And I'm not joking. I'm completely serious. Um, so, you know, I suspect it'll be replaced by something. I don't know what exactly. Um, I had a very interesting conversation 
today. I've done a, I, I, I do a radio show f- relatively frequently, once every two, three months or so. Um, there's a, a Jesuit priest named uh, Father McTeague. He does a radio st- show called Stations of the Cross, and I'm a regular guest on his show probably once, like I said, every two months or so. I like doing the show because he's extremely um, interesting and intelligent. He's very flattering as well. And uh, I always learn something about that. We, so I did one today. I did a two-hour one today instead of the usual one hour. And he said he wanted to talk about um, the uh, this thing I mentioned in the right angle last week called um, ham, ham-handed surgeons that um, that's the idea that while up-and-coming up young uh, surgeons in training certainly have the intellectual skills needed, uh, they study hard, and they're not stupid, they, they simply do not have the manual dexterity in order to operate or perform delicate operations. Surgeon instructors, surgeon teachers are saying three-hour operations are taking six hours now. And it's because nobody's using their hands anymore. And it's really, that that entire problem was completely invisible to me until very, very recently. I mean, you could talk about all the situations, psychological damage it's done with social media and, you know, internet and stuff. But this was, this was quite shocking. For those of you who didn't see the episode, shame on you, first of all. But secondly, this generation that is now appearing in medical schools so that would be late boomers early gen zers i'm sorry late um millennials early gen zers don't have the manual precision to do this why is that well because they they've never turned screwdrivers they don't play musical instruments they don't sew they don't knit they don't um work a screwdriver they don't change spark plugs they've never they've never had to deal with trying to get a spark plug out of a space that's got that much room at the end of the spark plug you know it's just it's 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 unbelievable i think the biggest contributing factor is they don't have to write longhand they don't have to write in cursive and 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 just the act of writing is is a constant feedback between your eye and your brain and your hand and i used to be really good at calligraphy um not formal calligraphy i just i studied enough calligraphy practiced enough calligraphy so that my handwriting was i thought really quite remarkably good and then not too long ago i had to do it again I, you know i needed to write something out by hand and and i sit down and i'm and i'm just you know just like bambi on ice there and it's like even in the space of 10 or 15 years i'd lost an awful lot of that um motor memory and motor skill um <laughs> fiery waco says and they've never had to navigate their way uh, past a bra hook yes uh you know you have left the uh the valley of the nerds when you can do that with one hand um anyway um this is alarming, but what I was talking with Father McTeague about is that this is just the the surface of it. They don't have the manual dexterity because all they do with their fingers is, is pinch and, and, and swipe. Uh, they've got pretty good thumb coordination, but you don't operate with your thumbs. You operate with your forefinger 
and your thumb and um, I uh, I remember many years ago doing a, a, a trifecta show about how people were noticing that small children two or three years old were having trouble stacking blocks wooden blocks they were having trouble lining them up and putting them on top of each other even then that's you know that's really um, uh, shocking to me but the but the conversation basically started going into a, a, a direction that was I thought a lot more insightful and it and it had to do with how this lack of manual dexterity and precision is mirrored by a lack of verbal dexterity and precision which means a lack of emotional dexterity and precision Father McTeet told a story I found extremely moving. He was um, talking about how we did things back in the olden days, you know. Okay, boomer. But he was talking about just the pleasure that you would get from receiving a letter. He said, when a friend of mine went away, my present to him was um, to buy him a whole stack of uh, pieces of paper and envelopes and um, and stamps. And one of the younger people in his in his uh, class were, were asking about that. He, he said, well, I don't get it. He, he said, well, you would sit down with a pen and you would write a letter and it would usually take you at least an hour and often could take you better part of a day. Write page after page after page. You'd write your feelings down with your hand on a piece of paper, fold it up, put it in the envelope, lick the back, put a stamp on it, drop it in a box, and four or five days later, or a week or two later, it would come out the other end and your friend would read it and he'd write your letter back and 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 this this young girl started to cry when she heard that and he said what's the matter and she said i can't imagine anybody going to that kind of trouble for me and i thought boy that's just really tragic i had some kind of allergy thing going on here really 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 tragic um we're at the point where uh, I don't even know what dating could possibly look like in this day. Well, I do. I, I know what um, Tinder looks like. But we're at the point where um, boyfriends and girlfriends don't like talking on the phone to each other. And we're commonly hearing it's because they don't, they can't really handle the emotion of it, you know, just talking on the phone. Much easier just to do this and I said look we we've not just evolved from you know uh, fountain pens on real paper to ballpoint pens on on, on coated paper to um, to typewriters to keyboards we're even past the the texting shorthand of LOLs and OMGs and you know LMAOs and all of that now we're at the point where where we're communicating with emojis and I've seen a couple of videos where people were uh, videos are people where, where it's appropriate to be outraged about something and and instead of expressing their feelings they just went out and got their they got their their angriest emoji the one the red face that the animated red face that goes mm -hmm. I thought, wow she must be really upset you know pulling that emoji out. I bet she uses that emoji for everything. 
So we're at the point now where we can't even we can't even write our feelings and and if we can't write our feelings then there's a pretty good chance that you you can't feel them in the first place this is as i mentioned on the show with father mcteague this was the genius of of um of george orwell in 1984 how do you make an a how do you make a tyranny that will never end how do you build a society that's a boot in back of somebody else's neck for a thousand years how do you do it and orwell made the case uh, that the way you do it is you you reduce the language there's a scene in 1984 where winston smith's in the cafeteria getting his algae paste or corpse paste as the case may be i guess and he's sitting next to this pompous guy who's the editor of the new speak dictionary seventh edition and he's so so proud of himself just goes on just bragging and bragging about how the seventh edition of the dictionary has seventy thousand fewer words then the sixth edition, he's managed to take 70, whatever the number was, 60,000 words out of this dictionary. And that was a major achievement. Um, and, and so what I got out of that is it's very hard to say things like, it's time for us to start a rebellion so that we can have our freedom back. When you don't have the words rebellion or freedom, if you have to say, we need to commit thought crime in order to do something that is double plus ungood doesn't quite have the same ring to it and and so what we're seeing all across our society is we're, we're losing we're losing definition granularity that's the word the, the we are losing the ability to define feelings that that our resolution is getting broader and it's not like boomers were the kings of the hill on this if you look at letters that were written in the 1800s let's say during the civil war the 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 astonishing vocabulary and the and the elegance in them and the ease at which they would convey tremendously complex emotions it's just unbelievable if you've ever heard saw the civil war uh kevin ken burns civil war movie that letter from sullivan Ballou to his to his wife is just enough to make you cry and it's because it's so beautifully written and he was not a writer he was just a person who who in that period did everything else had to write letters to people he loved and who he hadn't seen for months or years and who may never see again and he had to he had to put that in there and so he wrote this incredible letter to his wife about what would happen to him if he died and and how we should be proud of our son and all the rest of it and made everybody watching it cry because it was so beautiful and then you find out Sullivan Blue did in fact get killed in the first battle of Bull Run and now now Sullivan Blue would send a would send a, a kiss emoji and um and somehow it doesn't pack the same punch and it, and receiving it doesn't pack the same punch the um the we're we're losing intellectual precision and granularity and resolution and that means we're losing emotional precision and granularity because we're losing linguistic um, precision and granularity so um, this is accelerating and 
it's one of many things that are accelerating and all you can do is all you can do and um, and try to uh, just try your best to you know bring uh, bring this to the attention of people and I'm trying to learn how to do that without you know shouting at them and calling them idiots uh, the um, of all the things I see, the two things out there that really, really alarm me, because I consider everything else to be an engineering problem, uh, I think there's a physics problem involved, in, and that is that they have managed, the, the, the technology has managed to eliminate imagination and curiosity to a very high degree, because you instantly have all the information, all the videos available in the history of the human species at your fingertips at all times, immediately available. So there's no need to be curious about things because you get instant gratification. Since you get instant gratification, you don't get the, the, the prize. The prize of the, 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 the reward in the box of curiosity is you want to know the answer to something and you don't. And it's annoying and it's frustrating and you continue to want to know the answer to something. And the more you think about it, the more important it gets. And it's denied you. So when you finally get it, it's a payoff. If it was there instantly at the beginning, it would mean nothing. And so whenever the subject of, you know, uh, uh, millennials or Gen Zers, their, their appalling lack of historical knowledge, they will always tell you, well, if I need to know that, I'll just Google it. And as I've said before... Your problem is not that you don't know the answers. The problem is you don't know what questions to ask. You don't have any context to ask questions. You've never, you've never, you've never even experienced it in your life. Like that, that's why that example of that that young girl was so um, amazing to me. You know, just crying at the thought that somebody would go would would care enough to to go to the time and effort to write her a letter. That's starvation you know that's 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 emotional starvation and and i i i'm constantly down on millennials and, and gen zers but if i didn't care about them i wouldn't talk about it, it would be i i don't talk about duck hunting very often on the show because i don't give a damn about duck hunting but this is so and uh, so um scary to me not for me that, that this poses no threat to me i just think that that there is that they're that young people are just getting robbed and and cheated badly cheated about so many things that were just part of our lives and i'm deeply concerned about it because i don't think they realize or i know they don't realize how much they're missing and it's only when they get a chance to sit down with somebody who they're ready to listen to and and really hear that person talk about what what some of these things are about that they get it like at least a shadow on the wall of how badly um, cheated they've been. So um, this goes, this is a nice way to end, answer your question. When states require climate change uh, to be taught, when, when, when it stopped being global warming and became climate change, that was when I knew for an absolute fact that the thing was, um, made up because on it, on the face of it, well, we've got you know we've got to, our planet is changing. Our planet is changing. 
Yes, that's right. It's always changing. Always changing. And that's just plain dishonesty. So we all know by now what's behind this and, and what a lever it is. And and you have to keep people scared. And if you don't have the luxury of 25,000 thermonuclear weapons across the oceans um, to scare people, which was something to genuinely be scared about, then you got to invent something. Um, and uh, And early on in this debate and early on in, in my association with uh, Friends of Abe, we listened to a guy from Sweden, I think, and he was called, uh, was it the, the skeptical and climatologist, skeptical environmentalist or something. He was a guy who believed in, in, in the climate change thing, but he, he, he believed in it. And he said, well, here's why I believe in it. But he said, Bjorn Lundberg, that's the guy. Thank you, Dave Big Booty. And so you'd listen to Bjorn Lundberg, and he would say, say, Bjorn would say things like, so now you'll hear that because the planet is getting warmer, there's going to be 70,000 additional deaths to heat stroke, which is true. But what they don't tell you is there will be 400,000 fewer deaths to frostbite. And, and once he said that, I thought, duh, yes. You know, yes. If it gets warmer, then that's good for life. So, I don't know. Like I said, I don't open this whole can of worms, but you don't buy waterfront property if you genuinely believe that six years from now, uh, this whole thing's just going to fall apart. It's just plain fear-mongering and indoctrination, and it's taught as, not only taught as true, but it is enforced as true, and that's much worse. And when, and when you hear somebody say, I follow the science, that means they don't understand what science is. What they're really saying is, I follow the scientist. Uh, if the guy's got a white lab coat and he tells me something, then by God, I believe it. That's, that's what they're saying when they say, I follow the science. Because science is anti-authoritarian. That's why they made science. That's why science was invented. Because science was invented to shut up the priesthood of experts that run our lives. You know, well, I'm, I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm a virologist. Yes, you are, Dr. Fauci, but I'm not convinced that you've ever had anybody's best interest in, at heart other than yourself. And so you being a virologist doesn't impress me much, honestly. Uh, so let's just ask you some simple questions that have nothing to do with virology and find out whether you're telling the truth or not. And and I have such contempt for um, Neil deGrasse Tyson only because only because of his opinion of himself as this great scientific thinker. Uh, he is remarkably dense about a, a number of things. Um, I've talked before about how he would say, he shows the picture of the pale blue dot. Sagan talked about this in his final years. Voyager turns around. I think it was Voyager. It must have been Voyager. Turns around, takes a picture of the inner solar system. There's a band of dust that's sometimes visible on very dark, dark, dark nights. We call it the zodiacal light. It's a band of dust along the plane of the solar system. And, and this picture's being greatly enhanced. 
And in the middle of this band of dust, there's one blue pixel, which is planet Earth. And uh, and Sagan, who who I did respect, because Sagan was in fact an actual thinker and and, and wrote some many things of of enormous value. Um, Sagan said that uh, all of human history, everybody you know, everything that's ever happened, all of that is on this one pixel. And that and and Sagan's job was to remind people that there are billions and billions and billions of stars out there, and that's all fine and important because it's true. But they've gone so far in the other direction so that Neil, De T- Neil deGrasse Tyson can bring out that picture and with his pseudo um, – uh, Hmm. Obviously, there was super pseudoscience. That's what I'm looking for. With his um, pseudo elegance, a uh, pseudo eloquence, uh, and pseudo uh, philosophical basi- basis. Yeah, that. Um, Neil deGrasse Tyson said, "This is this is the Earth. This pale blue dot." He said, "If aliens were to come and visit our solar system." They wouldn't pay Earth any attention whatsoever. They would just be looking at the wonders of Saturn. And I heard him say this out loud. I said, what? What? There are gas giants everywhere. We have four of them in our own solar system. They all have rings. Neptune's not much to speak about. Neither is Jupiter or Uranus. But Saturn's rings are very, very pretty. But they're not the biggest rings in the universe or anything. And the idea that aliens would come to look at at Saturn and leave... This green planet with, with millions and millions and millions of species, billions of individuals, all of these different biomes, for him to say that is him trying to sound deep. It's him, it's him trying to sound deep. Uh, we are just so insignificant that, that they would completely ignore us and just come to look at Saturn and then they'd move on. What a, what a, what a bunch of horse crap that is and 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 delivered in such a such a smarmy kind of a you know of i'm so enlightened kind of way it was a it was the second stupidest thing he's he said the stupidest thing he said was when there was discussion about how wrong he was about the covid uh procedures that he advocated strongly as as the living voice of science along with bill nye uh another great scientific mind and he got into an argument about being wrong about this, and he said, well, that was the scientific consensus. And the guy said, well, the scientific consensus is wrong. And, and, and Tyson says, no, science is about consensus. That's what science is. Science is about consensus. No, it's not, you idiot. That's, that's, that's why we invented science was to get rid of consensus. One guy with an experiment that is repeatable and provable and especially quantifiable can blow consensus out of the water. Absolutely blow it out of the water. It, consensus is the antithesis of science, you moron. And he just kind of walks around with that kind of smug little look on his face. I'll drop another bon mot of, of my 190 IQ brilliance. In it. He's just a poser. He's just a guy who's pretending to be really, really smart. And he keeps getting hired for it. So there you go. The one thing you can count on from Neil deGrasse Tyson, however, when it comes to science, he will tell you everything he knows about the current thing. Whatever the current thing is, he's an expert on it. So whatever we're supposed to be believing, you can go to, to Tyson 
for a uh, for an in-depth um, uh, defense of, of whatever that current thing is. Um, and that also tells me a lot about the guy. Uh, yeah, he's he's, you know, I think, as I said earlier, Sagan had genuine insight and genuine brilliance and was a pretty good writer. But he, he had really important, some many important things to say. Um, but the, I, I never got the question, I never got the belief that Sagan was arrogant. I never, I never thought that he was pumping himself up or, or, or basking, you know, in his own glory or wallowing in his own crapulence, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, he always struck me as a guy who was not so much just humble as just kind of, wow, you know, that's really cool. Tyson comes out and says, wow, science is really cool, but he doesn't seem to know anything about it. And, and that's the end of our education question. All right, here we go. Charles Tomes. From an undisclosed location much closer than usual to CSR, CSR actual Darth Chuck the Merciless Signals. Well, that's the introduction of the, of the night. We are very enthusiastic about the new planned show and can't wait to see the first episode. Bill, you're not offending anyone by asking for viewers to become paying members at BillWhittle.com, and you should ask more often. You know what? You should become a paying member at BillWhittle.com, and I will say that again in, in just a few minutes. Thank you for that, um, Mr. Um, Mr. Tomes, and let me address that issue because there's been a little movement on that front as well. One of the things I realized when I started getting excited about this interview show is I realized that I was using – I was using psychology against myself. I realized when I started thinking about the consequences and, and backing it and pushing it and stuff, I realized that I had outsmarted myself. Um, I'm not going to go the, the either the false humility or the false uh, deprecation of saying uh, I don't say anything of any value, but I will say that I constantly feel like I'm underperforming. Uh, and when this idea of the interview show came up, I thought, well, Bill, you may be underperforming, so you don't dare ask anybody for, for money or membership. But you bring in some big names in, and those people are um, are uh, worthwhile and, and interesting to listen to. You can you can charge for Gary and John and, and Micro. And it took me a while for me to realize that that's exactly what I was doing. And you know what? Uh, any any kind of solution that works, if, if you can't fix it, if you got a workaround, then the workaround is better than nothing. And sometimes the workaround works so well that it doesn't, it's not worth rebuilding the machine. Um, so I've been um, I've been much better about that. And uh, and our we, we've got a we're we're still in a window of of real. Um, critical financial situation. This will go away in about a month because I believe we'll get new members for the interview show and I've got to deliver this uh, script to uh, Daily Wire for the Frank Luke thing. So I'm not worried about what things look like one or two months from now. I'm worried about getting from here to one or two months away. And when we uh, talked about that and I talked about the interview show a week ago on the Stratosphere Lounge, just as I was getting into the pitch about we could use your help the uh, YouTube stream locked up completely, just died. That's the third or fourth time that 
the streams have died right at a really important moment. It's probably just coincidence. Um, but yes, um, we we need to get from uh, from here to there, and um, you know we're spending some some you know not insignificant money on on some of these gifts to these people because it's a pleasure to do it. And I guess I've just answered my own question. I, I want to buy these extremely special and rare um, gifts for Gary and John because I admire and respect and, and love Gary and John so much and they've been so kind to me. I want to get them something nice and that costs money and as I said I've just come around and said well people may think that way about you Bill maybe they want to maybe they want to help you out you ever think about that no never occurred to me so um, thank you for that uh, Mr. Tomes if you um, if you uh, aren't a member and like to be it's uh, billwhittle.com and uh, one-time donations would be appreciated now especially and uh, and I am doing better than I was doing for the last three weeks uh, and the, the 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 support as always has been incredible I, I look at the PayPal donations I look at every one of them and all of the hang in their bills and all of the you know we believe in you it's just those are worth much more than the money and I'm kidding about that obviously the money is infinitely more <laughs> no they, they I read them all and um, and it's astonishing to me and it's astonishing to Natasha too it, it, it is by far the most heartening thing about um, about this uh, wading into all of this evil froth and slime. Uh, it's the emails that we get and the comments that we get that makes us um, not only worth doing, but makes me anxious to get out there and do it. Uh, okay, moving on. Um, Well, that's a. This is super awesome. We have a new member. It says he joined four years ago, so I guess we have a, a long time skill here. But it's from uh, Mickey McGaith. I think it's Mickey McGaith, and he's got a bitching cool avatar of a looks like a patch of a skull or something. It might be a, a fighter fighter squadron patch. Can't quite make it out from here, although it is rather small. Anyways, I think it's the first time I've. Uh, taken a question or seen a question from Mickey. So Mickey, if you're watching, hello. And if you're watching um, uh, recorded, hello again. Um, so here we go from uh, from Mickey McGaith. Uh, Newt Gingrich thinks DJT will win in a landslide. Critics of Democrats say blue states will bar DJT from the ballot because of his upcoming felony convictions through modern Southern justice. Write-ins will be mishandled in those states. What say you? I say what I've been saying, and that is it's pointless to lament cheating in a in a state that you're going to lose anyway. So, if it turns out California decides he's not going to be on the ballot, then it doesn't matter as far as the election is concerned on their side or our side in terms of the electoral count, because we weren't going to get California anyway, but if it turns out that Donald Trump is is removed from the ballot in California, that may affect the way people vote in Arkansas, who may find that um, that this whole thing looks and smells an awful lot like a like a witch hunt. Uh, so they're they think they're in a no lose situation, but they're actually in a no win situation. 
they're not going to, the more they persecute, uh, prosecute and persecute Trump, the more people who are not their base start thinking, I don't like the looks of this, which is why Republicans were up three last time and, and, and probably even higher now. Um, so the blue states are, are blue and, and they're corrupt which is an advantage because the red states are not corrupt, which means that the, that the, the blue team has a, at least a, a chance to win a, blue sta- a red state. And they're, you know, the, 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 the toss-up states, the purple states, are, are in various stages of integrity or disarray. And Arizona's a, Arizona is now the national disgrace that Florida was after the 2000 election. Arizona, twice in a row now, two elections in a row, has simply in front of our eyes just said we're going to screw around with these results and what are you going to do about it turns out nothing um but um so i don't um critics of, uh, of democrats say blue states will bar djt from the ballot it doesn't matter we have a winner take all um system now if it turned out if we didn't have a winner take all system if, it, if you were totaling all, if you were looking at the California vote as part of the national vote total and that the national popular vote determined the presidency, then this would be a very serious issue. But that's not how things work. They want it to work that way very badly for this exact reason, but that's not how it works. So if they could keep Trump's name off the ballot in, in states, in, in all of the blue states, it wouldn't affect the outcome of the election because those blue states are going to go blue anyway uh, electorally, which matters, but it would cut his popular vote by tens of millions, which doesn't matter from a actual rules point of view, but since we're dealing with people with uh, great rhetorical talent and zero moral um, uh, conscience, apparently, the leaders of this uh, movement, anyway, that would be, you know, they'd be able to say he got half the number of votes that Joe Biden got. Well, it's funny how that happens if you take somebody's name off the ballot um, illegally. Uh, I think that nobody's, it's not like Donald Trump is an, unt- un, is an untried um, uh, candidate. We, this is in 2016. Um, we know what we're going to get. And, um, and there, there are people out there who would rather have fentanyl killing people in the streets, entire cities being closed down like Fisherman's Wharf at San Francisco. They'd rather have five or six dollars a gallon at the at the gas pump. They'd rather have become a laughing stock around the world and lose any credibility as a result of Afghanistan. They would rather have all of those things than a guy who speaks highly of himself and tweets mean things out. And this comes again to the difference that I see between conservatives and progressives, and that is progressives would rather do something that feels good to them, even if it does harm, while conservatives would rather do something that's good for uh, the republic, even if it feels bad. So there you go. Um, moving on, uh, Marusha Dark, we have a, once again, you know, a lot of reading to do here. So let's have ourselves a little look at this. Yeah, I definitely need a new prescription. Okay, here we go. 
Hey, Bill. Uh, the other week I asked a question about getting off fossil fuels, and you talked a great deal about how climate change is BS and yada, yada, yada. While I appreciate the rant, I think you failed to address the key concern of my question, which was national and global security. Namely, every drop of oil we consume domestically is a drop we're not selling to our allies, which means that for those countries who don't produce their own, they're more likely to buy from our enemies, such as Germany and India, buying oil from Russia. This makes our enemies stronger, both in terms of raw dollars and the leverage that they have over other countries. In my opinion, there's zero reason that this should be the case. Me too. In talking to conservatives, the answer always seemed to get back is drill, baby, drill, which is fair enough, but I don't think that alone will be enough, especially as Saudi Arabia is ramping up massively into alternative energy as they're running out of oil. Good luck selling that. Ironically, the untapped oil in the Arctic requires melting of the ice to reach. So let's just consider that off the table for the time being. I'm worried that much like the left missing the memo on advances in nuclear, the day will come when EV tech and green energy is actually sustainable enough to replace existing systems, but conservatives will still act like it's not. That day is fast approaching as it appears Tesla just won the plug wars, meaning 10 minute charging times are within arm's reach across the country once the infrastructure changes over. There is no foreseeable world where so-called green energy, meaning non-fossil fuels and excluding nuclear, there is no possibility of those energy sources meeting even 25% of the needs of the, of, of the U.S. economy. It's simply not possible. Uh, and, um, and so this idea that the day is going to come when green energy suddenly is is working and conservatives are going to say we hate green energy we're we're, we're not going to get into it it's look if it turned out i mean this is like my answer I, sometimes i surprise myself when i was talking doing questions back when i used to go to colleges before they became uh you know wretched hives of scum and villainy Somebody said, why are you so opposed to free health care? And I said, I'm not opposed to free health care. What kind of a monster would I be if I was opposed to free health care? Of course I'd be in favor of free health care. If, 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 if there was such a thing as free health care, then I'd be handling that like candy. But it's not free. It's actually extremely expensive. And so, therefore, now you have to talk about how to pay for it. And the same argument applies here. If it turned out that you could power the country on solar cells, wind, and um, – yeah, just that on on solar and wind. If it, if it turned out you could get there, you could scale it up. Then why wouldn't you want that? I would be totally in favor of it. You know, if you could capture the sun's energy, especially if you could do it out in the middle of you know the vast distance between the Rockies and Palm Springs, where there's nothing out there. If it if it turned out that you could do it, then great. But you can't, and 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 you can't even get close. And both of those energy sources are intermittent. I don't know why nobody is, is bringing this up, but it's extremely important. They're intermittent. They are not constant output. The, the uh, <laughs> J.B. Colder says, the first big buffering of the night, because um, we're talking about energy. Even a tremendously, tremendously efficient and large solar farm loses power. You, th you, you want to say it loses power during the nighttime, but that's not true either. 
for a significant portion of the daylight hours, the sun is so low in the sky as to essentially mean zero. You only get peak power during that moment when the sun is as perpendicular to the to the um, panels as you can get. And you can rotate the panels if you want to go to that trouble and all the rest of it and add that cost and all the rest of it. But you're still dealing with the fact that you cannot look at the sun at noon, but you can look at the sun at sunset. So it's actually not even 12 hours of power you get. It's actually more like eight or six. And, and that power supply is interrupted with incredible regularity and a high degree of confidence every single night. I got a pretty strong feeling that if I'm running a, a, a solar plant, I've got a good idea if it's noon, that our power input is going to be considerably lower 12 hours from now. In fact, I'd bet my life on it. And and wind is, is, is the same kind of thing, except wind is even less predictable. I don't know what the optimum – I don't know. There is certainly going to be an optimum – there's enough I know about mechanics and aerodynamics. There is an optimum wind speed for a turbine. It probably varies based on the size of the turbine, but but certainly – there is a miles per hour of wind that is getting most the most efficient use out of that turbine. And I guarantee you that the amount of time that that, that turbine spends at that RPM is, is, is transient. And if the turbines are turning, in a, in a, it, that doesn't mean that they're generating enough power to even do what this limited wind farm is supposed to do so you have to build a turbine that will survive i mean this is just common sense right if you're going to put out it like in in el cajon pass that goes from la to palm springs pretty much the entire south southern california coastline gets funneled in uh to el cajon pass that's where i first saw ever saw a, a wind farm and they have hundreds and hundreds of turbines and they're big ones and little ones and so on so let's just think about this logically. You have to construct the turbine in order to withstand the highest probable wind that you will face. It's possible that a tornado will come through there and put 300 mile an hour winds on there. You're not going to build for that. But basically, you have to construct all of the turbines to be able to withstand the highest possible wind that can reasonably be expected to go through that windy area. Okay. That means that all of them are operating under their maximum output. It also means that they're heavier and more expensive because they can't adjust themselves. They can't get lighter when the wind gets smaller and they can't get less expensive either. So so what you've got is this fixed energy cost. You've got this fixed dollar value, this fixed investment in terms of materials and dollars and the amount of electricity it produces is is this. You spend X amount of dollars to build the thing, and the energy output goes from zero when it's calm to 60% of, of capacity, 70% maybe, maybe. So most of the time, it's down in here. And, and then it, it suddenly gets... Not windy anymore. And what do you do then? People don't understand this. These solar power plants and the wind power plants have to have and do have conventional backup 
power generating systems, oil systems usually, or natural gas, to fill the gap when these when these so-called renewable energy sources can't produce what they need. And since they're small, they don't get the economies of scale, they're less efficient, they cost more. And 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 there you go. And and as Steve Whoop says, or they just plain go to zero RPM in Texas when it freezes. That's an interesting um example, isn't it? You've got um you've got turbines out there that are gener- that are generating electricity. If it gets cold enough, they freeze. And if they freeze, there's no electricity to heat your house. So I'm not impressed. Between here and Las Vegas, there is the world's largest uh, solar power plant. It's three separate installations, a series of mirrors in a circle that heat a tower. They're not solar cells. They're not doing the conversion directly from sunlight into electricity. They're simply reflecting solar heat at the top of this tower, focusing it there, and it gets very, very, very hot up there. And those plants have been in operation for, I would say, at least 10 years now. And their energy cost is two or three times what it would cost if it was a natural gas uh, plant. And they're having a hell of a time maintaining it. And it doesn't generate power at nighttime. So, so to say that when that to say that the day is going to come when green power is going to finally be, um, you know, uh, filling all of our energy needs, and conservatives are going to cling to you know to oil like like we're like we're clinging to our wagon wheels and our and our hoop skirts, you know, and and it's it's just it's kind of a nonsensical argument. The entire argument against so-called green energy is that it can't do the job. So you can't very well say, well, if it suddenly starts doing the job. What would your reaction be? Because it can't do the job. Um, nuclear can do the job. Natural gas can do the job. Now, as far as the business about exporting and stuff, I was I was I lived through the energy crisis in in 1973, the Arab oil embargo. I remember being in a car waiting for an hour and a half to get five gallons of gas or whatever the ration was. I remember all of it. I remember the misery of it. I remember all of that. Turn down your your, your turn up your air conditioning and make it hotter in the summer, colder in the winter, and all, all of this. I remember it all. And the idea that the United States would be energy independent was off the table. We had been dependent on Arab oil for 30 or 40 years prior to this. And we would be forever. And we would continue to be dependent on them forever. And we would continue to be more dependent on them as time goes by. So when 2016, 17, 18 rolls around, and it's revealed that the United States is not only energy independent, meaning that we have enough energy underneath U.S. soil to power our economy, but we are, in fact, able to extract more energy than we can use in a given year, and we'll be able to continue to do that for the foreseeable future. When I found out that during the Trump administration, the United States was an oil exporter, you could have knocked me over with a feather. But we did. So the reason that we're not the reason that our our potential allies or at least neutral countries are buying oil from Russia and not from us is because Democrats are in charge in Washington and they are making decisions with a with a piece of paper and a pen that eliminate our ability to be 
energy exporters to not only keep the money out of the hands of, of Russia and China and and Saudi Arabia, as far as I'm concerned, but to but to build friendships with with other nations and 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 to lower gas prices so that so that not only can Americans have more money to spend if, if you lower gas prices and Americans have more spending money, then that's going to kickstart the economy. And it's an it's not an artificial injection. You're not you're not printing extra money. You're just making the money that exists more mobile. Uh, what's the word for that? Is it velocity? Economic term for how how fast a dollar one single dollar bill moves from one person to another to another. This essentially like voltage, I think. So so all of this is just basically predicated on a on a on a on a false premise and it's not a technological issue marusha it's not like it's not like gee we have to solve the energy we, we have to solve the engineering problem of the fact that the sun is is not there for half of the of the day of the 24-hour day we're not going to fix that problem now if you're talking about orbiting solar arrays that are inclined to the uh, to the Earth's orbit or in geostationary power, and they're and they're beaming energy down through microwaves, and they are in sunlight twenty four seven. They don't have to be mitigated by the atmosphere. All of that stuff. Then then that might be a different story, because then you do have in fact twenty four hour electrical power coming in. You now you just got to get all that energy down to the Earth, and uh, that's going to lose a significant amount of that energy. So that's not even on the table now. I'll tell you what what I would like to explore, and I, and I don't want to – let me just go back and make sure I got this right. I don't want to invoke the wrath of uh, Chris Taylor here um, because uh, I don't know what the – and I'm, and I'm being you know, silly, Chris. There is, besides nuclear, there is a 100% reliable – inexhaustible, largely untapped source of energy, and that is geothermal. The Earth's core is hot. And when they when the Soviets spent 20 years digging the deepest hole that's ever been dug, they had to stop because it got hotter much faster than they thought it would. In other words, the heat from the from the Earth's core, which is still just largely driven by radioactivity and, and tidal stresses and all the rest of it, and then the fact that you've just got a whole bunch of iron and molten rock that has to cool and nowhere to escape into space, that heat is very, un, you know, is very uh, heterogeneously scattered, meaning that some places it's easy to get to and other places it's hard. In Iceland, they're pretty much completely driven by geothermal because the, the Earth's magma happens to be very close to the surface in Iceland. So you don't have to go that deep. But digging a deep hole is a problem that is a solvable engineering problem. And I don't understand why we aren't looking at being able to – look, energy production, driving a generator is very simple – it's not a question of energy. It's a question of, of temperature difference. That's what matters. The way you generate energy through a turbine is something is over here, and it wants to be over there. 
because this is hot and that is cold. And and the larger the distance, the la- the larger the temperature um, difference between the two, the more the hot stuff wants to get cold. Down there, it's really hot. Up here, it's pretty cold. And you can drive a, a continuous cycle of, of energy that way. Essentially, you're using the Earth's core as a nuclear reactor. Your same principle as a nuclear reactor. In a nuclear reactor, you have something that's very, very hot, which is the uranium core. And you have a, a closed loop of, of, of usually water. Sometimes it's liquid metals and all kinds of exotic things. But essentially, you're putting stuff close to the reactor. It gets really, really hot. It wants to get the hell out of there to where the cooler stuff is. And as it does that, it goes through a turbine and that generates electricity and then it cools down and then it is forced by the electricity back into the thing. And uh, that's not a perpetual motion machine because energy is being added from the outside in the form of the radioactivity and decay into heat. So I would like to see, I'd like to see some research projects being done, not functional geothermal plants yet, but experimental test beds, I'd like to know how difficult it would be to get to get down to a temperature where there's enough of a gradient between what's down there and up here to be able to do useful work. I would like if it turns out it's not possible, then I'd like to know that. But I'm not. Well, first of all, it is possible. It's 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 it is completely possible. The it is hotter down there than it is up here, and we have a pretty good idea how much. Certainly, the crust is thicker in other places, and drilling through 12 miles of crust is not a trivial problem at all. It's a serious problem, but we haven't really given it a solid go, because if you can pull this off, then. If you can pull this off, then then actually you you've actually you you even beat fusion power. This is the thing I don't understand about why we haven't been pursuing this, and there must be a good reason. Although it's probably the kind of thing where you would go, oh, it's just a political and economic reason, not an engineering reason. So look, under our feet right now, under my feet, underneath your feet, some distance down there, it is hot enough to um, to boil water, and create steam and that steam can drive a turbine and you can have a little turbine right on your desk if you could get the water down deep enough to get it that hot. But think about this. It's 24 hours a day. The temperature never changes by so much as a degree. It is not only it is not only constant power in terms of its not varying during the course of the day, it's also extremely predictable power because it's not changing its temperature. These solar plants are constantly changing the amount of energy they, they are able to produce based on the angle of the sun, the relative position of the sun, and the fact that there is no sun during the nighttime. Wind, so, uh, wind power stations are constantly varying the amount of electricity they can produce based on the amount of wind. And, by the way, as far as wind farms go, it's going to be at its most efficient the day it's finished. And every day from that point forward, it's going to get less and less efficient very little at first, but then suddenly very quickly, because as those turbines age, the the friction level, whatever the whatever the engineering solution is to make a low friction bearing for that turbine to spin, that 
friction bearing is going to degrade because it's made out of reality and that means it's going to get less and less and less and less and less efficient from from the day you start but if you could get down there to all you have to do is go deep enough to get water to boil that's it we're talking about pipes all of the machinery can be on the surface you don't have to put the turbines down there. You don't have to put the transformers down there. You don't have to put the wires down there. Nothing. You just have to put water down there and get it back up again. And and that means that you don't have nuclear waste to deal with. I'm a big fan of nuclear power, but this is better than nuclear power. It's cheaper than nuclear power. If you build a nuclear power station, you have to constantly maintain it. Even even if you have a fusion station, which is fabulously expensive, you still have to maintain it and operate it and 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 and, and fuel it and all the rest of it. This thing is just a freaking hole in the ground, and it's just generating a endless energy. It's just there, and the I, I have I have not got the slightest doubt whatsoever. Not the slightest doubt whatsoever. If we were to do this tomorrow, and all of a sudden you could get you could get um, uh, not essentially free, free energy, free electrical energy anywhere in the world and everywhere in the world. If you could do that, I guarantee you it would be a matter of a few weeks before some scientists came along and said the consensus among scientists is, is that we're cooling the Earth's core off and, and that all of this drilling down there is cooling the Earth's core, and eventually it's going to mean that the molten iron core of the Earth is going to freeze up, and that'll be the end of our magnetosphere, and we're all going to die. Um, so, I would like to, I think geothermal is, is horribly overlooked, and when we were doing my junior year in high school, which would have been 1976, our debate topic was energy and one other type of energy similar to hydrothermal but I think with more possible consequences is something called ocean thermal gradients uh, it's a it's a significantly easier engineering problem to solve than geothermal and it works the same reason except that when you're dealing with the ocean it's not it's not hotter down there it's it's considerably colder down there but like i said it's about the difference so there is a a theoretical power plant called um what, what did i just call it hydro i've forgotten the name of it just flew out of my head i did say it a second ago and what they're basically saying is okay so you got cold water down here down there warms up up here that's a cycle you can it'll move on its own and um, ocean thermal gradients that's what it's called and so you would just use the power of, of you would use the difference in temperature between the surface of the of the ocean and the great depths of the ocean to move something and if you can move something then you can turn something and that turning thing can generate electricity that one strikes me on a planetary level that one strikes me that could in fact actually affect the the earth's climate if you started putting a lot of cold water on the surface and and so i'm not such a fan of that 
But the idea that you're drilling these pinpricks into the Earth's core and into the crust and that it's somehow going to cool the core is just, in, it's insane. It's a perfect solution. There's got to be some excellent reason why it's not being done. And maybe the excellent reason that it's not being done is because it's a perfect solution. Who knows? Uh, here's a super chat from uh, Patrick Brady. Uh, thank you very much, Patrick. Hey, Bill, you and the guys have some of the most interesting and entertaining stuff on the webs. Well, thank you. I didn't know you were talking about. Is it possible to simulcast on Rumble? Yes, it is. I've heard a couple people say that before, but um, I, it might be as easy as me just touching one of these switches because we are um, simulcasting on YouTube and Twitch. We've been on Twitch forever. We got YouTube into the mix, and this new version of, of um, OBS Desktop, which is a studio version, uh, Streamlabs desktop can stream to a number of different sources at the same time. Right now, we're using Streamlab to stream to YouTube and to Twitch. Um, and it's possible that I can just click that button and go right to um, Rumble. Uh, so I will um, I will try and get that taken care of because um, I have heard a, a couple people mentioning it. And Rumble is slowly beginning to gain some steam. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's getting to be more comfortable for people to go and see videos on Rumble than it used to be. They've still got a lot of a lot of work to do to kind of decluge that, um, that site. But nevertheless, I, I will look into it. And, and if it's just as easy as essentially just connecting it to the account and turning on a switch, and it might be, then I would uh, certainly love to do that. And from um, Lapco92, another super chat. Thank you. Hey, Bill, been a while, but here's a few bucks to help you out. Thank you very much. We, we appreciate it. Love your show idea. Reminds me of the old Dick Cavett shows where he'd steer the conversation, but basically just let the guests talk. Yeah, um, I want... Uh, I'll just come out and say this uh, as plainly as I can. I think... I have a lot more to offer than just asking the questions. I would, I've been constantly talking about this as an interview kind of thing. And we think of an interview, there's the interviewer who has a series of cards with the questions on it, asks the question, and the interviewee goes long or short based on whatever. Next question, please. I'm looking at these things as a series of discussions. And... And I'm hoping and, and, and I expect that they will start to build momentum. I know when I talked to Adam Baldwin for about half an hour after I emailed him and he came back and said, yes, he said, just give me a call. And we'll talk about the details. In 10 minutes, we were, we were at, you know, we were at hundred RPM and, 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 and pushing. We were just, just ideas coming back and forth like crazy. So, um, so we will see, but in any event, I, I have yet to hear a single negative about this idea. And this is not something that we might do. Uh, the invitations have gone out, and the only reason I don't have a, a date scheduled is because I am not going to um, I'm not going to schedule uh, one of the guests until I have the, especially some of these gifts being extremely intricate. I'm not going to do it until I've got the both the gift and the cardboard cut out in place. Then I'm going to ask them because I have a long history of of basically jumping the gun on these things. And so the second I get there, I'm going to do that. Um, 
Wally Lama says, oh, my God, I love Adam. Did I miss that? I, maybe you did. Adam, um, Adam Baldwin's going to do the show. Somebody, I think it was during the um, – um, maybe Stratosphere Studio, but someone – Someone said Adam Baldwin is the only Baldwin with uh, trigger discipline. I thought that was a a, a nice shot at a, at a not nice guy, uh, being the Alec Baldwin. No relation. Um, uh, and uh, Bart's Treasure says, uh, regarding the interviews, Bill, it makes a big difference when people actually research before asking questions Thank, like you do. Thank you. And I, and I am going to research this stuff heavily, mostly by watching – um, the movies that I'm interested in in terms of the archetype and and taking notes. For example, in uh, Midnight Cowboy, which I have not seen in forever, and which we're about to watch again, we're probably going to watch tonight, except I'm so tired and probably tomorrow night. Um, there's a montage of John uh, Boyd as Joe Buck walking through New York. He's got his radio, which is a status symbol for him because Joe Buck is a is a he's a he's artificial. He's a construction. He's a he's a walking parody of something. That's what the movie's about. And they're singing. Everybody's talking at me, and it's a montage of him going through New York City and kind of doing the hazy thing. There's a shot of like all of the people, you know, one of those long tele telephoto lens shots of the sidewalks of New York, and everybody's walking, and they're all compressed because of the long lens. And you see these sea of heads, and then there's another person. There's one person that is a full head taller than everybody else, and that's John Voight looking around. He's got his cowboy hat on and all the rest of it. Um, so, in that montage. There's a moment that's kind of jarring where he's, oh, you know, it's it's almost like on the town. He's like, here we are, you know, looking at all this groovy stuff. And then they come to the point where there's a, a, a guy lying on the ground, not a homeless guy, although he does have a reaction to the homeless guy too. There's a guy lying on the ground. He's gone down. He probably had a heart attack. And everybody is walking right past him. And Joe Buck looks at him and wants to help him. And you can see the distress on his face and the alarm, but you can also see him watching everybody else walking past him. And he's thinking, I don't live here. I've just gotten here. Nobody else seems to care about it. And so he looks down and then he just kind of walks away. And I want to ask John how that felt because, because he, he, um, he had to produce that reaction. If I'm wrong about this, then then I think we'll still get interesting conversations, but the, the, the premise behind the, the, the entire series is wrong. But I don't think I'm wrong about this. John Voight, the actor, has to be enough of that person to look down. It's not like he's surprised. He, he knows before the cameras roll that a guy, an actor or an extra or something – is lying down there, and he's seen him in the lunch line. Ready? Okay, 2 o'clock. All right, we're going to do the scene with a guy on the ground. Okay, everybody take your places, and they back up all the extras. The assistant directors are there. Lights are there. Mike's, and so he knows this is not really a guy, but this is what acting is. So when he comes by and sees this guy on the ground, and you see this distress on his face and, and, and this sense of, like, guilt as he walks off camera, John Voight had to be experiencing those emotions – in order to get that reaction, and that's what actors do. They're capable of 
hypnotizing themselves into behaving as someone else. And they have to create that person internally. There's one script for Hamlet, and there's thousands, tens of thousands, unlikely millions of different Hamlets created by different actors using the same material. And so he has to have that in him, and, and that aspect of him, that vulnerability, is, is what makes John John. And one of the big questions I want to ask him, probably the main question would be, I would imagine that there is nothing that would make you feel more vulnerable than being vulnerable on camera. That's got to be the ultimate form of nakedness, where you are going to your own internal sense of vulnerability and dredging it out and putting it on the screen for everybody to see because this character has to appear vulnerable. That's coming from somewhere, and it's coming from the place where you're most tender. I would think that would be the hardest thing to do. And we'll see what he has to say about that. Um, so, uh, yes. All right. I think we could go back up and do Eric Blake's second question, which will make him unspeakably happy. That'll be all the questions in this segment, and that'll be the end of the show. So let's just do this one, and we will see. Uh, Joe Dirt walking. <laughs> Hail Vectrump, Citizen Whittle. Okay. Hail Vectrump. Uh, now, as you know, the massive fire throughout Maui has further exposed Biden for the disgusting fraud that he is. Several residents have been interviewed on this, and they are furious at him, even screaming at him with his appearance this week. Now I look back a few months at the East Palestine, Ohio aftermath, how Trump partook in, in a political masterstroke with the assistance effort, all amid the Biden administration dragging their feet. Now, indictments aside, I don't know if Trump would be able to similarly assist here beyond his bottled water as the damage is so much worse. But I think the two disasters together will go a long way towards driving these two states to our side next year. Hawaii in particular has a long has long been solid blue, so I'd say that's the big one. What say you? Well, there's no other word for it. Biden's reaction has tremendous propaganda value for the Republicans if they're smart enough to use it. Um, I did not see his his speech. I have heard from a number of people that essentially he said something to the effect of, man, I sure know what you're going through. We once had a kitchen fire and it was really awful. That's just a deadly insult to, to those people. I don't know whether that'll turn – it's the same argument as the, as the California thing, um, keeping Trump off the ballot. It's, it's really the same argument. I don't know if it'll flip Hawaii, but it might flip Ohio, like as you said in your question. Um, the more you um, the more you can show Joe Biden being a mean-spirited, rotten son of a bitch, which is what he is, in his own words, you can say you can call him that, and that's one thing. But when you show him being that, and when you show him again and again and again, that's how you win elections. If I was running the if I was running the Trump media campaign, I would be putting together 
a series of videos, and I would keep adding to them, of Biden being mean. There's one that's relatively recent where Biden basically threatens this guy and says, you want to step outside. It's surreal. It's a president of the United States who, by the way, is, 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 is so feeble as Trump said he can't even walk across grass lawn, threatening an American citizen who asked him a question with physical violence. You want to step outside? I would go there. I would go there and I would live there and I would stay there. I would be doing the hair sniffing like there was no tomorrow. Every single commercial I ever would run, would if I was running Trump's campaign, at least if I was running the negative side of Trump's campaign, I would be look. I would do nothing but he's checking his watch while the bodies are coming home from Afghanistan. He's sniffing this girl's hair. He's um, he's doing that bizarre thing he did with what's her name that actress. He's he's he come on fat and 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 corn pop and all the rest of it. I I Joe Biden's illusory appeal was that he was a nice guy. He's a good old honest Joe. You know, anytime you say anybody calls themselves honest, something or other, you know, you're dealing with a crook. And when he says, I give you my word as a Biden, that's exactly what he means. And that's exactly what it's worth. I would go at him personally. I would also go at him from terms of the economy and all the rest of it, but I would mostly chip away at this idea. And I would show how mean spirited he is, how creepy he is, and how out of touch he is. And I would just keep banging that drum to the point where nobody, even the bluest of blue people, would be able to say that I like or believe in Joe Biden. They'd still vote for him because it would be, at least it's not Trump. But, but, that's all that he would get. He wouldn't get any of the, of the people who, who he managed to get last time. I don't think he personally don't think he won the election last time. That's my opinion based on a significant amount of evidence that I saw. And that was convincing to me, but in any event, I certainly find it hard to believe that he out, um, outdrew Obama. And I certainly find it rather incredible. And in many precincts, he outvote, he outdrew the entire list of eligible voters. Um, so, so go at, Go at him, at, at, go at his character, at his character, and and poke him, you know, poke him uh, publicly. Donald Trump has, um, he, has thick, he has thin skin on some level, but he also has a wicked counterpunch. If you insult him, he's going to he's going to come back at you. And I don't think Donald Trump suffers any more damage to his reputation by going after Biden. People who don't like Trump personally already don't like him. There are a lot of people who are going to vote for him who don't like him. Uh, I'm going to vote for him and there are many things about him I don't like, although I think he was an excellent president and 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 his main appeal for me now is is that the entire U.S. government is weaponized in order to make sure that he doesn't become president. So, yes, he's I'm 100% on the Trump train there. And while many of the things he does I wish he wouldn't do, that's the guy, you know, that's – I can't spare this man he fights. Um, but I would I would completely destroy this image of, of Joe Biden. And having dealt with uh, both dementia and um, – uh, 
Alzheimer's in my family for 10 or 15 years, I can tell you that the that you can cover up the memory loss and people forgetting things is alarming. So if you if you're dealing with somebody you know or you love or in this case somebody you voted for, when they start losing their memory, it's heartbreaking and it can be frustrating, but when the dementia sits in and that real meanness comes out, that will that will just break your heart. I heard my mom say things. I heard her say words I didn't think she knew. I couldn't believe what was coming out of her mouth, and it wasn't coming out of her mouth. It was coming out of it's coming out of this this breakdown in, in her in her in her mental functions. But when Biden threatens people, Biden confused should be alarming, but Biden nasty is a visceral fu reaction, and I'd be playing that. Uh, at full volume until um, until the until the you know the cows come home, and I don't know what time the cows come home. I've often said I'm going to keep doing this till the cows come home, and now I realize after 64 years of living, I've been constantly telling people to do something until the cows come home, and I don't have any idea when that is. I don't have the slightest time idea. I'm going to guess the cows would come home somewhere around dinner time, sunsetish, but I'm not a farmer and I'm not a biologist. So um, I'm not capable of uh, doing that. Well, so we got through all the questions, uh, and that's a, a, a victory of sorts, which you know I will take. Um, let me uh, do this. Everybody stay there. Don't anybody move. Everybody hold position. Hold position. Just freeze. Freeze while we adjust this light. Nobody move. We're just going to make a small adjustment here on um, on this uh, this little inky here. I want to just move it just a little bit and get a little more light over there. So everybody just stay where you are right there, okay? Okay, here you go, hang on. And um, Marusha or somebody else, if you could take what went into Twitch and put it onto YouTube, that'd be great. Um, what I found uh, last episode was that when when we talked about um, raising some money uh, to get us through this dry patch and to get us into this happy um, uplands uh, that are right in front of us, um, when I was doing this live, the PayPal um, notifications were just going ding, ding, ding. And right at that time, the YouTube stream cut out. And I don't know if that's coincidence or not, but nevertheless, um, it was really <laughs> pretty annoying. So um, if you were watching last week and the, uh, and the feed cut out, you didn't get to see me... Um, asking for help and you certainly didn't get to see me looking at this 158 160 people who are not watching anymore because the stream has suddenly stopped right at the time when uh, the commercial needed to be there but um we've just put up in the in the comment sections on both twitch and youtube uh a link to billwoodle.com it's a one-time paypal donation it's not a membership or anything um but uh if you can help us out now would be the time uh Getting from here to the next six, seven weeks is going to be the hard part, and I think after that we will be in good shape. Um, we've had to put uh, virtue signal on hiatus because it's just we, we just can't afford it. It's a lot. It's editing heavy, and you have to pay Zo and, and all the rest of it. Uh, and I would like to restore that as soon as possible. And mark my words, it will be restored. This is a, a temporary thing. But um, if you can help, uh, there's the link in both uh, YouTube and. Um, Twitch, and 
every little bit helps uh, because on some level needless to say i count the donations to figure out how much money we get out of this but i also do more than that i don't just count the donation total i count the number i can't if, if somebody donates a dollar that's the same in this calculation as if somebody donates five hundred dollars it is so encouraging to see the numbers of people and 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 so if you're thinking well you know it's not enough to make a difference just doing it makes a difference uh to me so um that would be great uh in any event this show is made possible by the members of billwiddle.com and uh and they've stood with us through thick and thin uh through um the members of billwiddle.com for the last nine years have been people who who did this this is a shoe store i'm the shoes if you come into the shoe store and say how much are these shoes then my reply to you will be well we'd like you to pay two hundred dollars for them but if you want to take them for free you can that's the sales pitch and the members at billwiddle.com are the people who said well they're worth two hundred dollars so i'm going to pay for it even though i don't have to they are the members of billwiddle.com have for 10 years now been paying for other people to see the message and that is an extraordinary uh extraordinarily generous and 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 uh visionary thing to do and um and it's basically you know a one-man show here so we all know what bill time is and I, i carry around a lot of guilt about that but um i'm feeling very very good about both of these upcoming things uh, so if, uh, if you can, if you can hit that button for, um, PayPal, anything will help, not just because of the dollar value, but because when, um, somebody pushes that button, uh, it's, um, it's extraordinarily encouraging for me and I really appreciate it. So with that said, uh, that'll do it for this edition of the, uh, Stratosphere Lounge. Uh, get a good look at, um, at Gorn Captain back there. He's going to start getting company. I'm hoping to have, uh, a partner for him. Uh, by Monday's show, certainly by next Wednesday, and then um, I am going to do a life-size cutout of everybody we interview. They're going to be right over my shoulder, and then when the next show comes, they're going to move to the background, and after a relatively short time, I mean, honestly, you've got a lot of people lined up within the space of a season, there are going to be more cardboard cutouts behind me here than will fit the frame. So the big ones in the back and it'll be like here's all the people we interviewed watching me interview the next people so uh so there we go um and that'll do it so again thanks for everything thanks for the support and especially thank you for the encouragement about about being more active about ask, asking for help because this was a huge stumbling block for me i seem to be getting better at it and when the people who you feel you know guilty about asking money for or telling you don't feel guilty about it hooray you ask for money <laughs> it works like a charm it's really amazing oh there's a super chat from um blank uh, frankie thank you very much it's just absolutely great and uh so we will see you monday i uh, hope to have some some new animations to show because i got to move that little ball along too um but uh, we're certainly better than we were uh this time last week and much better than we were this time two weeks ago and i'm slowly beginning 
to recover uh, some sort of basic regularity in my heart rate. So that's, that's kind of nice to know as well. All right, so thanks for joining us. We'll see you um, on Monday night. And until then, uh, be careful out there and, um, and don't let the bastards get you down because I'm not giving up and you're not either. <laughs>